Prophet Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. You ever experience one of those moments in your life where you kind of mentally take a step back, take stock of the situation that you find yourself in, and ask, how did it come to this? The opening of Hosea 3 is that kind of moment for God's prophet. The first three chapters of this book record record God's providential plan for the prophet Hosea. When we get to chapters 4 through 14, those chapters contain excerpts or snippets of Hosea's preaching ministry to the nation of Israel. But before we get to the sort of meat of that message, before we hear, well, this is what Hosea had to say, the first three chapters give us a picture of this is what Hosea had to endure. The goal this morning is to talk about a prophet and a prostitute, giving the personal background of Hosea and how God used that background to prepare him to be a messenger to the people of Israel. You can see here in chapter 3, verse 1, the key to God's plan is the personal life of Hosea and his love for this unfaithful wife serves as a kind of living allegory, this living illustration for God's redeeming love for his chosen people. Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. You see the parallel here. Love that unfaithful wife just like I love my unfaithful people. But this verse is the middle of the story. You actually see that in the words, go again. Like, I assure you, Hosea would have heard this as, here we go again. We need to back up to the beginning of the story and see God's providential hand in preparing his prophet. So go back to Hosea chapter 1. You will note the very first verse in the very first chapter, Hosea 1.1 begins to set the scene, the prophet Hosea ministered in Israel from about 775 to 700 BC. The messages of Hosea were primarily to the northern tribes, the northern nation of Israel, those 10 tribes that had broken away from Judah in the south and lived wickedly. And they lived wickedly along a a long line of wicked kings. So he lived in a time where there were actually great riches and prosperity in Israel by worldly standards. At this point in time, the Assyrian Empire, which sort of loomed large and threatened out there in the background, had actually weakened for a short time. And Israel found themselves wealthy and at peace, and they used that wealth and peace to worship idols 
and to feed their own self-pleasure. Now, since Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel, verse 1 is a bit of an oddity in that it mentions four kings of Judah, four kings in the nation of the south, but only one king of Israel in the north. And this is probably because after Jeroboam, who you see listed there at the end of verse 1, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, after Jeroboam, the nation went into a sort of free fall, spiritually and politically. The nation went through about six kings over the course of 30 years. Many of those kings were dethroned by murder. And the Lord God had already sent prophets like Amos and Isaiah to proclaim his plan to use that Assyrian empire to judge Israel. So when God begins to speak to Hosea, maybe Hosea thought, well, he's going to send me to just say more of the same. But that's not quite what he gets. Hosea had no doubt heard the prophecy of impending judgment from the farmer prophet Amos and from the royal prophet Isaiah. And no doubt he thought, well, God's message through me is going to be that same kind of hostile message of judgment and wrath on sin. But God's message through Hosea is going to be different in that it is more full, more futuristic, more filled with hope. And yet as the book opens, Hosea is no doubt a young man, and he is simply not prepared to preach passionately about Israel's rejection of God's love. I mean, at this point in time, he doesn't know love. He doesn't know rejection. He doesn't know heartache. But he's about to get a PhD from the Seminary of Sorrow because maybe as a young prophet, Hosea hoped that he would marry some pious little princess who's going to, you know, she's going to be this devout woman who's going to help him in his ministry to Israel. But verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Oh, Hosea, what a treat this is going to be for your life. Go marry a prostitute. No doubt, your folks are going to be proud of what you're about to do for the family name. I'm sure the neighbors are not going to have anything bad to say. And just think about the benefit that this is going to be for your calling into the ministry. Can't wait until you get start getting questionnaires asking, you know, before we consider you for the ministry, can you tell us, does your wife meet the qualifications of a prophet's wife? You think this is a bad decision by Hosea? It's not, it's not Hosea's decision. This is God's command to obey. God tells Hosea, this is what you must do. And God is not going to submit his divine wisdom to the short-sighted judgment of mankind. Listen, Yahweh is God. Hosea is not God. And so God has the right to make commands and make decisions about Hosea's life without seeking Hosea's approval first. 
And so Hosea does what he should. He obeys. Verse 3 says he goes and he marries a woman named Gomer, this young woman who her character is just as lovely as her name. Now we need to consider a couple of interpretive questions here. First off, was Hosea supposed to marry a woman who was already engaged in sexual immorality? Or was he just supposed to get married knowing that this woman he was about to marry would prove to be unfaithful? Or in other words, was God's command here, go marry a prostitute, or is it go marry a woman, but just know that this is what she's going to become after you marry her? And frankly, I don't know that we can answer this for certain, but I tend to think option number one is the most likely, that she was already engaged in sexual immorality and known to be. Since the parallel here for Hosea's life is God's own actions, we know that God determined to love people who were already wicked and would just continue to be unfaithful. So most likely, Gomer was already bad and she didn't show any promise of getting better. Second, what does verse 2 mean in regard to Hosea and Gomer's children? Take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. Just like it means that Hosea is to take a sexually immoral wife, the phrase could mean that the children end up being sexually immoral, but I think it's unlikely. More likely, this means one of two things. First, though it says, for example, in verse 3, that Gomer conceived and bore him a son, there may be, given her sexual immorality, at the very least some question about who the father of these children really is. Hosea claimed them, but don't discount the fact that they are children of harlotry. I mean, we'll see in a moment that this third child is literally named not mine. Second, calling them children of harlotry does not necessarily mean they're illegitimate, but that Gomer's life choices, listen, we understand the the things that she's doing are not going to be confined to the privacy of Hosea's home. At the very least, at a minimum, these poor kids are going to carry around the allegation of being illegitimate. Sin always has consequences beyond ourselves, and these children will be known as children of harlotry. They will forever bear the disgrace of their mother's behavior. God's providential plan here, though, is to use this marriage and this family as a message to Israel. Continuing through this chapter, we'll note the first child is named Jezreel in verse 4. Jezreel is a place. The Israelites in the past had gathered there for battle before going into battle and getting slaughtered by the Philistines. Naboth's vineyard was in Jezreel. That is, before Naboth was murdered there by King Ahab. One of those kings that were intentionally omitted 
from verse 1 was a man named Omri, and his whole family was infamously murdered at Jezreel. And so when Hosea names his son Jezreel and says God's judged and he's going to keep judging like that, it's something like if we had a child and named it Ground Zero or Bloodbath. I mean, this is a bad place. The second child, a girl, is born in verse 6. Take this as you will, but verse 3 says, Gomer bore him a son, but that language isn't used again. In verse 6, she conceived and bore a daughter. And in verse 8, she conceived and bore a son. This middle child, this girl, is named Lo-Ruama, a name that means no mercy, no pity, or not loved. What kind of guy names his little girl unloved? Well, Hosea did it at God's command. He named this child Lo-Ruama, for God says, I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. I will utterly take them away. The third child, a boy, is named Loami in verse 9, which means not mine or not my people. Or it's a word that means abandoned. Just like the nation had abandoned Yahweh, he is going to, he says, abandon them, refuse to claim them as his people. Those are not my people. If they didn't turn around, right? So he says, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Hosea's wife and children are a not at all veiled message to the nation of Israel. So imagine Hosea meeting someone new and introducing his family. This is my wife, Gomer, lovely name. Where'd y'all meet? Well, God said for me to marry a prostitute, so red light district, street corner. Anyway, God's blessed us with this beautiful family. Here are my little kids, bloodbath, not mine and unloved. But Hosea, they don't all look like you. (laughs) I know. Yet God is going to use this unlikely relationship between a prophet and a prostitute to dramatize the truth that God himself loves those who do not deserve love. He loves those who seem unlovable. He's going to use Hosea and Gomer to demonstrate to all the Gomers of history, male and female alike, who have prostituted themselves, who have traded the true love of God for the affections of this world, that none of us can fall so low that we fall outside the reach of God's redeeming love. Immediately after forming Hosea's family and naming Hosea's children, using them as a prophetic message to the people, the text turns to a message of hope from Yahweh to his nation. Though they were as unfaithful to him as Gomer would prove to be to Hosea, though they had heard the message of Hosea's children, bloodbath and not my people and unloved, look at verse 10, verse 10 in chapter 1. Hosea 1, starting at verse 10, says, 
Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. This is going to be good there. And in fact, verse one, say to your brothers, my people and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So God has a plan to bless his people. The nation will be numerous. The the nation will be known as the, the sons of the living God. They're going to be united together as my people according to God's own display of mercy. But, but, the majority of Hosea chapter 2 is difficult. We understand that the Lord is using this marriage of Hosea and Gomer as a picture of his own love for his unfaithful people. But in chapter 2, verses 2 through 13, frankly, the lines between those two stories get more than just a little bit fuzzy. You read this and you go, well, is this a, is this a text an expression of God's frustration with Israel? Or is this a description of Hosea and Gomer's cycle of marital failure? And the only answer we can give is yes. At at times it's one and at times it's the other and sometimes it's both. So I would just encourage you to read through chapter 2 a couple of times. One time keeping in mind that this is the story of Hosea and Gomer. And then again, remembering there's a greater story here about Yahweh and his unfaithful people. And when you read it that way, both times what you'll hear is the voice of a faithful husband who has reached the end of his patience. Verse 2 in chapter 2. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Hosea reaches the point of exasperation with Gomer's continued unfaithfulness and calls the three children as witness against her. Or this could actually be phrased as to plead with her and not just plead against her. So in both, pleading with her, pleading against her, there is this ultimate declaration made that She's not my wife. I am not her husband. Why? Because Hosea had experienced these cycles of unfaithfulness in Gomer. Look at verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Time after time, Hosea has come home to an all but empty house with the children unfed because Gomer has abandoned them and abandoned him, choosing to run after her lovers instead because she thinks they have more to offer. And in fact, she would do this even though Hosea tries in verse 6 he describes to hedge her up to wall her in or in other words to do whatever he could do within reason to entice her to stay 
But she would not stay. She would leave looking forward to all the the promises of happiness that that sin says that it's going to bring until such time that all those promises just completely fail. And then she would say, like the end of verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than, than now. The mirror image is the relationship between Yahweh and Israel who he endured these cycles of unfaithfulness as Israel would leave to, to worship the, the Baals, the false gods, crediting those gods with all the good things that Yahweh truly gives until such time, of course, as the nation endured hardship and then they would return weeping saying, well, we had it so much better with you, but only until they get what they wanted and then they would return to unfaithfulness again. This is the lesson of heartache that Hosea learned as his own wife would, he describes, dress seductively, go out into the public very possibly to serve as a prostitute at one of those temples for the Baals. Yahweh would experience the same thing. You can hear the voice of Hosea and the voice of God in verse 13. She decked herself with earrings and jewelries and went after her lovers, but me, she forgot. And so Hosea had learned the first lesson necessary for his prophetic ministry. And now, now he would be able to express the disappointment and the heartache of loving those who are unfaithful. He understood, I think, that when God expressed his heartbreak over the spiritual adultery of Israel, Hosea had some idea of what that heartbreak would be. And yet, he still wasn't ready to deliver the full message of God. Because God's message through Hosea was to be a message of restoration and redemption. There's going to be judgment, there's going to be short-term consequences, but God has a long-term plan and he is not going to give up on Israel. In fact, in chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it's clear that it is the voice of Yahweh speaking about taking Israel out into an isolated place and alluring her, speaking comfort to her. In verse 17, removing from her mouth the name of those Baals so that she forgets those false gods and remembers her love for Yahweh. And in verse 19, betrothing Israel to himself forever in righteousness and justice and mercy and loving kindness. In fact, chapter 2, verse 23 says, I will sow her for myself in the earth. I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So, by the way, you remember the name of Hosea's children? Not my people, no mercy. God says, but I have a plan for mercy. They're going to be my people. Now, just at this point, let's stop and ask. Do you think that Hosea wanted to marry an unfaithful woman? Do you think that Hosea 
wanted to have his heart broken by her repeated unfaithfulness. And so do you think that at this point in his story, that at this point in time after enduring that, that he wants anything to do with restoring Gomer the way God promises to restore Israel? God's message is go tell Israel that God is not seeking a divorce. He's pursuing reconciliation. But how is it that that's going to work out in Hosea's life? How is he going to have any reconciliation with Gomer? She was gone. She wasn't coming back. And yet she was still out there somewhere and God knew where to find her. Remember, we started at chapter 3, verse 1. That how did we get here moment? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Now there's some words we need to concentrate on here for just a second if we're really going to understand the story. The first phrase of this verse tells us that the command of God to Hosea was go love a woman who is being loved by another man and is even now committing adultery. She was not reformed Gomer was not at this point knocking on the door asking for a place at home again. She was actively adulterous. And yet in this living allegory, Hosea is not just called to feel the heartache of God at her unfaithfulness. He's also called to express the redemptive love of God for the very person who had caused him that heartache. Hosea 3.1, God essentially tells the prophet Hosea, (laughs) man, go get her. Can't wait for her to wander back because she's not going to wander back. He has to go where she is and get her. He has to go find her because redeeming love goes and seeks the one who needs restoration. And don't overlook how messy this is. I mean, he's not going to be able to, you know, drive his car down to the red light district and pull up to a street corner and say, hop in. It's not going to be as easy as that. Is he going to have to knock on some other man's door and say, hi, is this where Gomer's living? (laughs) Why? Well, because I'm her husband. I want to take her home now. What do I owe you? It seems most likely from the way the story unfolds that she was living as a religious prostitute. And Hosea, the prophet of God, is going to have to track down his wife at some temple of Baal worship. Prophets of God are not supposed to go to those places. Prophets of God are not supposed to associate with those kind of people. Hosea is not supposed to be seen in the the streets and neighborhoods where where Gomer is going to be found. And no doubt as he went and searched for his wife, people watched this well-known prophet with suspicion. Can he really be a man of God if you can find him looking there? Can he really be sent from God if he's associating with that kind of person? And eventually, though, he finds her. 
And it's not a, it's not a private moment. He finds her for sale. Y'all, I don't mean that she was available for overnight rent. I meant he finds her for sale. She is a slave. What's it look like when he walks down the street to the marketplace, maybe or maybe not with, you know, bloodbath and unloved and little not mine in tow, and sees his wife, their mother, at a slave auction because there he was, this prophet of God who no doubt everybody knew had been spurned by this woman who they thought he was an idiot to have married in the first place. And they're probably thinking, I told you so, as he's walking to the marketplace. And there's Hosea. He is going to go shake his vindictive finger in the, wom- in the face of that nasty woman. There's Hosea. He is on his way to see what has become of this treacherous wife and have the last laugh. And when he gets there, there's Gomer, naked and shackled and shameful. And Hosea suffers the indignity of listening to other men bid on his wife. But chapter 3, verse 2 says, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. I bought her. Hosea bought his own wife. Shouldn't have to do that. Yet standing there at the auction block, he is helpless because there's no chance that he can interrupt things and say, well, you know what, excuse me, that's my wife. I'd like to take her home now. Because the bidding starts and men offer money and Hosea listens as the price goes up. (laughs) But y'all, it doesn't go up very high. In the estimation of the people watching, Gomer is not worth much and we would be hard-pressed to disagree with them. The going rate, the set price of a slave is 30 shekels of silver. Gomer is going to sell for just a little over half of that. Nobody thought Gomer was worth anything, but she's going to cost Hosea everything he has. The purchase price, he says, is 15 shekels of silver and roughly seven bushels of barley. This suggests at some point, as Hosea is, is bidding on this, he runs out of money, but he keeps bidding on the promise that he's going to go home and raid the pantry in order to pay the rest of the price. And he turns over the money and his living to purchase his own wife, a price he never should have had to pay. But remember what this is. Hosea, you go love her like God loves his people. It cannot be more clear that Hosea is a picture of God's redeeming love. And like it or not, that makes Gomer a picture of the people God loves. Are you one of the people God loves? Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That includes you 
and me, every man, woman, and child on this world is a unique possession of God because he has made us and all the earth and everything in it is his. He should not have to purchase us. And yet he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price to buy what was already rightfully his. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to this earth to shed his blood in order to buy back what God rightfully owned in the first place. In this prophetic picture, Gomer had abandoned Hosea. She had abandoned those three children. She has no no gleam of righteousness to her. She made him a laughingstock. She brought shame on him and disgrace to herself. If Hosea was showing the kind of love that this world shows, Hosea would not have taken her back if you would have been the one paying him to do it. But he's showing the love of God, love that reaches down to those who don't deserve it and willingly pays the price of their redemption. Look at verse 3 in chapter 3. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Right? You hear this? Gomer, you're going to be with me for a long time. You're not going to sell yourself to other men. You're not going to commit adultery anymore. You are going to be faithful. And in return, I am going to be faithful to you. He's not asking for something he's unwilling to commit himself to. Now, one last thing I want you to see in the parallels here in this story. We look at Hosea and we think, man, he's just amazing, right? We're in awe of his ability to be loving and kind to Gomer in spite of how awful she was to him. But now, now that God has made Hosea and his relationship this living allegory of his love he is sort of graduated from this seminary of sadness and he's ready God has put Hosea in a position to have his own heart broken and yet still be forgiving and then gives him a message that Hosea I think is finally in his right mind to deliver the way God intends for it to be delivered something clicks. Hosea is finally ready to get the message and declare the message that God has a plan of redemption and restoration for his unfaithful people, but that redemption comes at an incredible cost. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Hosea says to his unfaithful wife about the nation, look, we've all done badly. We're going to experience some hard times. We have, in verse 4, separated ourselves from God by committing spiritual adultery against him. And so we're not going to have kings or princes. There's going to be no worship. There's going to be no priest to approach God for us. It's all broken. But 
But there is another day coming, verse 5, afterward, later. Although I don't know if Hosea understood that it was roughly 800 more years for later to come around. But he says later there's going to be a day when the people will be restored by Yahweh their God and David their king. There is coming, he says, a day of restoration and costly redemption for God's people. And that day is manifest through this son of David, who is Yahweh God himself. The promise of glorious King Jesus here. This is the promise of Jesus. And yet, do not fool yourselves about the depths of humility he stooped to in order to find us. Redeeming love has to come and search out the one who needs to be reconciled. And that's what Jesus came to do. He is the son of God, this son of David that is promised in verse 5. And when he came, he went to some appalling places and connected himself with broken people. And you can read the Gospels all the while. He has these taunts of, well, he is a righteous man. He wouldn't go to those places. If he was a righteous man, if he was really sent by God, he wouldn't associate with those people. And yet he searched us out and found us. And what he found was not a pretty sight. We're slaves to sin. Shameful. He entered the world and found us in the marketplace of, as slaves to sin. And we deserve nothing more than to be condemned to an eternity in hell for our unfaithfulness. But instead, the love of God was displayed in his purchase of us in order to restore our relationship with him. Hosea and Gomer, it's a picture of God's love for his people. And our Hosea could not just hand over a pocket full of coins and a couple of barrels of grain. Jesus paid the price of our redemption at the cost of his own blood. And so this, these first few chapters, they are the story of how Yahweh worked in the life of Hosea in order to prepare him to be a prophet, to give him the message so that he understood and could deliver God's word faithfully. Starting in chapter 4, all those themes of unfaithfulness and judgment and restoration are going to come. It's like God tells Hosea, now you feel the message, so go out and do your job. If you're going to proclaim that God is committed to these unfaithful people, then you are going to learn it by committing yourself to an unfaithful wife. If you are going to learn to plead on God's behalf, telling the people that their wickedness and sin has broken the heart of their creator, then you, Hosea, are going to have to experience the unfaithfulness and the, the broken heart of yourself. And only when Hosea learns firsthand that redemptive love comes at a high cost, there is an inequity to it. Gomer did not deserve restoration. She did not earn being redeemed. 
She was nothing but unfaithful. Then Hosea can go and tell people about a God who loves people, who don't deserve restoration, who don't deserve redemption, who have been nothing but unfaithful, and yet his redemptive love will pay the price to reconcile them to himself.